Many of us didn't grow up observing the church calendar, but since the fourth century, the church has ordered time according to the significant moments in the life of Jesus and the early church. This calendar begins with the celebration of Advent, a period of four weeks leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and we anticipate His second coming. In between these important Advents, we wait in the tension. We pray for deliverance. We cry out against injustice. We long for the culmination of redemption and the reign of King Jesus. The texts that are used for these weeks are not your typical Christmas passages. They are prophetic, apocalyptic, and filled with warning and hope. Each one leads us to consider Christmas for what it truly is. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Enjoy the episode. All right, week four of Advent. Uh, we're excited that you guys are with us. I am battling a bit of a cold, so if at any point throughout the sermon I might just turn, I turn around and blow my nose, but that'll be okay. We'll get through that. Uh, this evening, our text is from the book of Matthew. This is Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. God. Now I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Josh, you said a few weeks ago that we were spending our entire Advent season in the book of Isaiah. What are we doing reading the book of Matthew? Well, if you can connect some dots, the author of Matthew is making a direct appeal back to the book of Isaiah. This is a really well-known passage. In fact, I was on Twitter today, which I don't recommend you do if you want to you know, keep your sanity and keep your positive outlook, which... I have most of the time. Uh, a, a pastor was saying, hey guys, don't mail it in, even though this is one of the most familiar passages that people know. This, this story about Joseph and the angel appearing to him and, and the virgin birth of Jesus. People know this story, but I'm convinced that people don't know the background to this story in the book of Isaiah. However, as I look across the room at these lovely people, this might be something that you've heard from me before because if pastors ever did have things that they like to preach and re-preach, for me, this is one of them. I love Isaiah chapter seven because it allows us to get our hands dirty with what the Bible is, how we read it, what we expect from it, and how the New Testament authors were making use of the Old Testament when they were putting their books together. When they're writing these stories of Jesus, these New Testament authors are saturated in the stories of the Old Testament. 
These are things that they know. Uh, in fact, when you look at the New Testament, it's not just the overt citations to the Old Testament that you can see on the pages. Sometimes scholars have noted echoes or allusions that might be really faint to Old Testament uh, passages and larger contexts, but the author is almost making an appeal for their audience, which also knows the Old Testament really well, to connect some dots to Israel's backstory and what God has done in the distant past. And in this passage, in order for us to understand what Matthew is talking about and what any sort of significance can be attached to the virgin birth of Jesus, we've got to go back to our favorite book of the Old Testament, which is Isaiah. Isaiah. So without any further ado, we're actually going to jump into Isaiah chapter 7, which is our main text of the night. And I'm going to try to... um, help us understand what's going on in this passage so that we can then ask the question, what is Matthew doing with this source text that he is using to help us frame the birth story of Jesus? This is Isaiah chapter seven in verse one. It says, in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, these are all kings in the south. These are kings in in Judah. And remember, we'll see this on a slide in a moment. Judah in the south is different than Israel in the north. These are, at this point, these are two separate kingdoms with separate kings and capitals and and political sort of offices. These are two different, distinct nations, if you will. And now we have Ahaz in the south who is reigning and ruling. And while this is taking place, King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah, son of Remaliah of Israel, went up to attack Jerusalem. Now, the author doesn't let you have much imagination about this. This is why I had the spoiler alert on here. That and also, like I've been saying to a lot of people, hey, don't ruin Star Wars for me. Don't ruin Star Wars for me. I haven't gone yet. I might go tomorrow, but don't ruin Star Wars for me, Bill. I don't know if you've already seen it, but like we're kind of, it's just on the tip of our tongue. But here in this story, it's right in the, in the first verse, but they could not mount an attack against it. So we know what happens at the end of the story, right in the beginning of this story. You've got Rezin, the king of Aram, who's in uh, the even more north of Israel. You've got King Pekah, son of Remaliah in Israel. And these two are in cahoots and they're going to attack Judah in the south. Here's a, a map of it that might help you understand what's going on. We've got Judah here and it's capital of Jerusalem, which is different and distinct from Israel, which is also known as Ephraim, which is one of the more powerful tribes in the north, and Ephraim's capital, which would be Samaria here. We've got these um, monikers which help us identify and uh, talk about Israel, Ephraim or Samaria. This is the northernmost tribes of God's people, different king, separate political empires, those sorts of things. And they're in cahoots with Aram up here in the north, which is uh, capitaled in Damascus. Now, if you're going to see what's happening here, lying beneath the background of all of this in this moment is an Assyrian threat. Tiglath-Pileser III is on the warpath, people, and he is making headway south. He's attempting to to, uh, just expand his empire as world leaders do at this time, and our main man, TP3, is on the horizon, and he is moving down south, and this is a problem. Aram doesn't want this to happen, and Israel doesn't want this to happen, and they form what is called an anti-Assyrian coalition. 
because TP3 is on the warpath and we've gotta stop him before anything happens. So let me tell you what we're gonna do. Rezin and Pika here, son of Remaliah, we're going to form an alliance and we're going to put pressure on Judah and its king, Ahaz, to join us. And by doing that, we are going to uh, have a, a more solidified group that can go to war against Assyria, even these three piddly, piddly, tiny little nations. They can't withstand the onslaught, but they have grand uh, ideas of what might be possible. And in this text, what they're attempting to do is they're going south to pressure Ahaz, and if Ahaz won't join, they're gonna boot him out and put another a puppeteer king in his place so that they can all be in cahoots together. Got it? TP3 in the north, on the warpath. He's heading south. Rezin says, we've gotta form a team, and he forms a team with Pika in Israel, and they have this anti-Assyrian coalition, and now they're pressuring Ahaz in the south. This is the uh, background to what's happening in this passage. Now, it says, when the house of David, this is important, this is important, because it's not just talking about Ahaz in particular, it's talking about the entire, fancy words, Davidic dynasty. Because in 2 Samuel 7, God says, David is my guy. And it's through his descendants, they will always be on the throne. Ahaz is a terrible king. And now it's starting to, in this passage, it's starting to have hints that maybe the house of David is uh, and its future is at risk. When the house of David, Ahaz, heard that Aram in the north had allied itself with Ephraim or Israel uh, or Pekah, the king there, the heart of Ahaz, it says, and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. These folks are scared because now not only do they have to deal with TP3 and all of his siege engines and his very well-trained army, but now they have to deal with enemies in the north who are beginning to pressure them as well. And the Lord said to Isaiah, the prophet in the eighth century, Isaiah ben Amos, he says to him, go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son, uh, Sha'ar Yashuv. Again, if I don't see anybody who's maybe having kids anytime soon in the room, but if you are, just tuck that one away, Sha'ar Yashuv. It means a remnant will return. And Isaiah is going with his son, who has named this as a symbolic sort of uh, tip of the cap to Ahaz. He shows up and says, hey, Ahaz, I got a message for you. Oh, this is my son, a remnant shall return. And some folks take this as an ominous sort of uh, turn of phrase where now Ahaz is staring at the fact that there will only be a remnant of his people after Assyria or after the anti-Assyrian coalition will come and destroy him. So he's got this stuff like kind of on his brain here. Other people view that more positively as after you guys get destroyed, there'll be a remnant of you who is able to come back home. It's ambiguous, but either way, this person here is not meant just to show up as a cute, cuddly kid. We don't know how old he is, by the way, at the time. But he's got this name that's, that's symbolic, and Isaiah is almost bringing his family into the mix, saying, hey, I've got a word for you, and not only am I gonna talk to you, but I want you to think about my main man, Sha'ir Yashuv, over here, because it's meaning something. A remnant, whose remnant? When, when is the remnant? Go and meet him with your kid at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Nobody knows anything about where this is. 
Um, but it does come back, I'll just say this for your own thoughts. It does come back the only time in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, when not TP3, but Sennacherib is on the warpath. And Hezekiah is trying to figure out what to do with Sennacherib. So some people are saying these two stories have some sort of link together. That's advanced nerd stuff. If it doesn't mean anything to you, just let it fly right over your head, okay? So they're here. We don't really know where they are, but Isaiah's there with his kid. His name is a symbol. It means something. Say to Ahaz, take heed, be quiet. Don't fear and don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands because of resin in Aram, because of Pekah in Israel. Ahaz, don't worry about them. Take heed, be quiet, don't fear, because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, because of the fierce anger of resin and Aram, his, uh, his empire, you could say, or his country or his, his geographical region, you could say, and the son of Remaliah. I have this in italics because note, whenever Isaiah is talking, he doesn't say Pika. Whenever Yahweh is talking, he, he doesn't say Pika because Pika is a butt. <laughs> That's, sorry. Pika has uh, had this coup and asserted his authority into the throne. And here, Isaiah doesn't want to mention him by name. He keeps calling him the son of Remaliah. Woo, Ooh, that's spicy. I don't, know, I don't know if you get it. That's, that's spicy, though. It's not, not talking about Pekah. It just says, don't be afraid of Rezin and his, his geographical region in Aram and Damascus in the north. And don't be afraid of the son of Remaliah, whose name I won't even say because he is a dastardly devil. <laughs> don't be afraid of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands because Aram with Ephraim or uh, Aram in the north and Israel uh, a little bit south of, of Aram and the son of Remaliah, they've plotted evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and cut off Jerusalem and conquer it for ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king in it. Don't be afraid, Ahaz. Don't worry about these two smoldering stumps. It's not going to happen. It says, uh, therefore, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Ahaz, what you're worried about right now, about who to be in alliance with, don't worry about it. Take heed, watch yourself, trust. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. There's this uh, sort of progression here. Aram being the larger uh, kind of nation, if you will, Damascus being the capital and Rezin being the king. So it goes from country to capital to king. Aram, Damascus, Rezin. And then it just kind of record scratches here and there's something that's thrown in the middle. It says within 65 years, Ephraim or Israel will be shattered. They will no longer be a people. This is, this is sort of ruining the effect of what the author is attempting to do. Aram, Damascus, Rezin. Then it's gonna go into um, Ephraim, Samaria, Pekah, or son of Remaliah. We're gonna have these sorts of things that are, are gonna... Uh, these patterns that are gonna replicate, but in between here is this weird text about 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered and no longer a people. This might be overkill. A lot of this might be overkill for whatever that's worth, but we're gonna talk about it anyway, okay? 
Nobody really knows what to do with this 65 years because this text seems to have the background of the 730s in, in 730s BC as Tiglath Pileser III is on the warpath. Not even much over 10 years later, Israel is destroyed by Assyria. If you look at this 65 years when Ephraim will be shattered, that puts us more into this range here of 669 to 667. And there is a change of power in Assyria, but Israel has been long demolished up to this point. So scholars don't really know what this is referring to because it would have made more sense for it to say, you know, for within uh, nine-ish years, eight to nine-ish years, Ephraim will be shattered, no longer a people, but that's not the case. Uh, they go with this text here. Side note, a lot of people too would say that this is uh, a lot later and an editor has kind of inserted this in the text, which makes sense because when you see what happens here, it says the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah, again, not Pekah. And if you go back to uh, what we had before that kind of 65 years bit was there, it's the same sort of pattern. The head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And the implication is, and the head of Judah is Jerusalem, and the head of Jerusalem is you, Ahaz. Stop being afraid. I've got this. It's what seems to be uh, the, the, what's being communicated here. And again, if you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. This is what Isaiah is attempting to communicate to the king in the south. You've got all this stuff happening around you. You've got TP3 who's been killing everyone, and you're worried about that. And now you've got this anti-Assyrian coalition that's putting pressure on you and you might be removed from your palace and from your seat of authority and you might be worried about that. But what God keeps saying is, don't worry about that. If you do not stand firm in faith, you're not going to stand at all, Ahaz. Here's your moment, here's your chance. Say no to the anti-Assyrian coalition. Say no to TP3 and trust that God will take care of you. Walter Brueggemann says the future depends upon the king's trusting and acting in certain ways that preclude policy formation out of Yahweh denying panic and foolishness. In other words, Ahaz, trust in Yahweh. Now we know, in the backstory to this, we know from 2 Kings that Ahaz does not do this. Instead, Ahaz very quickly forms an alliance with none other than TP3 and the Assyrian Empire because he doesn't trust that God will take care of those two smoldering firebrands. Instead, he wants to align with a larger, more powerful political empire. Ahaz does not trust in Yahweh, does not trust what Isaiah has said in this passage. In other words, Fear wins the day, and Ahaz cowers in the face of potential defeat, even though God is saying, stand firm, Ahaz. The text continues, and this is where we start making connections to Matthew, even though what's happening here, what we've been talking about, is important for our understanding of, of what's about to take place. 
Again, we don't know when. Some people tie this closely to the first nine verses, and some people say it's a, it's a bit later, but either way, uh, the Lord is speaking to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the abode of the dead. Think about it like in, in, in the middle of the, of the earth, if you will. Like it's, it's down there somewhere in the ancient mindset. It's as far as you can go. In fact, people would say it's so far that Yahweh will not even meet you in Sheol. Once you're there, you're just there and you're just amongst the dead. Let the sign that you ask be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven or the heavens. Remember, for in their mindset, God up there, Sheol down there. Don't equate Sheol with hell. They're different. But that's where the dead people are. That's where God is. And you can ask for a sign anywhere in between, Ahaz. Go nuts. Whatever you want God to do. If you're put on the spot, what kind of sign would you come up with? Remember Gideon's bit about like, I'm gonna put out this fleece and in the morning it should be wet, the ground should be dry. I don't know, that sounds good. And then the next time he switched it, I don't know which one came first. I don't have the whole Bible memorized yet. That was a joke. But like, what kind of a sign would you go for if, you, if God is allowing you? Any sign you want, Bill, I'll, I'll show up, just pick something. Ahaz doesn't know what to do, but Ahaz gets all pious. It says, this must be a trap. This is probably a trick. Because in Deuteronomy, we know that you're not supposed to put the Lord your God to the test. So I will say, I should not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. I know he's saying whatever sign, I'm not gonna do that though. Very pious, Ahaz. But also there's more behind this. Fear has already won the day. God asking Ahaz to, to have to put him to the test, to, to have this sign. It seems as though the ship has already sailed a bit. And now Ahaz is saying, I can't do that. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna put the Lord to the test. And now Isaiah butts in and he gets really ticked about this. Hear then, O house of David. Again, not Ahaz, the Davidic dynasty. Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary mortals like me and like all these other people with your silliness? all the fear and the policies that you're trying to, is it not too much for you to, to weary us, but now you, you weary my God also? Well, guess what, Ahaz? You didn't ask for a sign, you're gonna get one. This is like, it's pretty ominous. This is sort of dark. You didn't want a sign? Well, here it comes. Here's the sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman, the Alma, say it with me, the Alma. The Alma is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. In Hebrew, Alma means nubile young woman, young unmarried woman. It's a woman of marriageable age. She's sort of um, ready for those relationships to take place. This is not necessarily... Um, meant to communicate that she is a virgin, okay? There's a perfectly good term in Hebrew for that, betula. It would mean virgin in all cases. Alma, in some cases, uh, might have that connotation, but in other cases, it doesn't. In fact, and here I'm gonna bombard you with a bunch of 
dry, dusty scholars' uh, remarks on this. Hugh Williamson says, there's widespread agreement nowadays that Alma refers to a young woman who may, of course, be a virgin, but is not necessarily so. Walter Brueggemann says, it's undoubtedly clear that a status of virginity is not of any interest or importance for the sign of Isaiah. John Goldengay, my doctoral supervisor, shout out, says, while there is some uncertainty about whether Isaiah 7 is talking specifically about a girl who is a virgin at the moment or whether she is a young married woman, if she's a virgin, there's no suggestion in the context that she will still be a virgin when she has the baby. No, no one, if you're not catching this, it's, pre I'm, it's pretty overt. No one in Isaiah is waiting for a virgin to have this immaculate conception and deliver a baby. Further, he says, the context suggests a birth that will take place in the near future, not some, in some centuries' time. In other words, what's happening in this passage is not, stick with me uh, and keep your toes back because I'm about to step on them. This passage in its original context is not predicting Jesus. That's not how prophecy works. Remember, Ahaz, those two smoking, smoldering firebrands, don't worry about them. And here's the sign. The young woman will conceive and give birth to a son and will name him Emmanuel. It's not suggesting something that will take place way down the line. It's suggesting something that's here and now. And then finally, Pete N says, the miracle in this passage, it does not concern the nature of the child's conception, but that the child will be a sign of what will soon come to pass. In Isaiah, a virgin is not going to have a baby. In Isaiah and Alma, a young woman, of marriageable age is going to have a kid. Checking in. And we're trying this new thing where you're able to ask some questions and have some feedback, so <coughs> this is your moment. Um, I was thinking about that today for some reason. I don't know why. Which part? Was, real, was Mary really a virgin? Okay. That's what I was saying. We're going to circle back to that. Was there another woman that had a baby at that time? In Isaiah? Yeah, <laughs> we'll get there. Go. Was that, isn't it pretty common for a young woman to have a baby? <laughs> Was that much of a prophecy? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, yeah. Mm -mm. Nope. Okay. As, as low as Sheol, as high as the heavens, some random person's going to have a baby. Right. No big deal. Now, I will say that this passage has evoked all sorts of conversations about who is the Almod. I think that's actually where we're going right next. So it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman, the Alma, the, the, the woman of marriageable age, there's somebody that's going to have a baby. And this baby is going to be named Emmanuel. That's the sign. Some people would say it could be any woman. In fact, it could be all the women. It doesn't really matter. That's not the point. I think that's, how, that's where John Golden Gay goes. It's just, it's meant to be anyone of marriageable age that will become um, pregnant and have a child. That's the sign. In other words, within a couple years' time, this thing won't be on your radar, Ahaz, because I'm about to take care of it. 
Now, other people would say, maybe this is Isaiah's wife, and they're going to have another child in addition to Sha'ar Yashuv. Now they're going to have uh, Emmanuel, God with us. But the, the chronology doesn't make a lot of sense there. It's not quite clear, but uh, this is where ancient Jewish interpretation has gone. This is Isaiah's wife's kid. Um, Isaiah in this, in this book has another kid uh, a couple chapters to the right. I forget where it is. It might be in chapter 10 or so. Uh, and then other people have said Ahaz and either his wife or one of the women in his harem will have a kid. And that will be the sign. Nobody knows, though, and that's really not the point. The point is more that this young woman is going to have a child and she's going to call him Emmanuel. And then it goes on to say he will eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the good and choose uh, refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, some people would say that this is probably going to be within the first two years, and the curds and the honey, or the milk products and the nectar products, this is something that you eat during peacetime, <coughs> is what scholars are saying. So somebody's going to have a baby, and then this kid's going to be fine because during the peacetime, he's going to be eating curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, when he's young, before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread, it will be deserted. Ahaz, trust in the promise. It's right in front of you, but he won't do it. This prophecy in Isaiah, it's about now. It's about here. It's about what will transpire very quickly because that's how prophecy works more often than not in the Old Testament. It would make no sense and be no good to say, Ahaz, I know you're having a tough time, but cool news, in about 725 years, man, Jesus, right? Yes, you'll be dead. But in that time, it'll be good. That's not the point. Isaiah is saying, and, and kind of with a bit of, of angst to it, you screwed the pooch, you had the chance, you didn't trust, I'll give you a sign, here's the sign, the people that you are scared of, they'll be done. Because Emmanuel will be here. Side note, we import a lot of stuff into the name Emmanuel, like God with us, it's a good name. But in the Old Testament, all sorts of names had what are called theophoric elements to them. Uh, they have like God in the name or, um, for example, Eli. It means my God from El. It, it, this happens all the time. So don't import a lot in the name. It's, it's something that's just saying, hey, uh, God's going to take care of us here and now. Ahaz, you big dummy, trust in Yahweh. That's the point of this passage. Do not lead from fear. Do not let that be the thing that motivates you to sign this legislation into law. Do not let this be the thing that forces you to join this alliance or that alliance. Ahaz, trust me, don't lead from fear. Don't make an alliance with Assyria. But that ship has already sailed. Spoilers there. We see in 2 Kings that Ahaz, first of all, he's introduced as he's going to be terrible. He doesn't follow the way of David, which is how kings are introduced, either positively or negatively. And Ahaz, very early on in the stories of, of his uh, kingship in the book of 2 Kings, I believe it's chapter 16, 
says that he makes an alliance with Assyria and kind of seals his fate. And then in the last verse of this context in Isaiah 7, it says, the Lord will bring on you, Ahaz, and on your people and on your ancestral house, on the Davidic dynasty that you had a chance to contribute to, but you didn't. He will bring on you such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. He will bring upon you the king of Assyria. Dun, dun, dun. TP3, TP3, TP3. Bad things are gonna happen here. And Ahaz is being judged for his lack of faith. In this story, fear wins. Now this is Isaiah chapter seven. And this is in the background, and this is informing how people are reading Matthew chapter one, or at least it should in some ways, which begs the question, what in the world, or what in the first century Jewish world, is Matthew doing when he's reading Isaiah, when he goes to this old text? How is he looking at these sorts of passages, and how is he connecting the dots to Jesus? This is the important point here. And the answer is pretty clear. He's just doing what first century Jews did. The way that they approached the text, it was with creativity, with passion, with intelligence. They're making these sorts of uh, connections that other people might not have seen, but they're making them because Jesus. Jesus has fundamentally changed everything. Jesus is the end of the movie that now when you go back and rewatch the movie, you can only see the movie through the lens of the end of the movie. Jesus has completely ruined the Old Testament for the New Testament authors. They know where the story is going. They know what's going to happen. So when they're reading through the scrolls, they begin to see Jesus on the page and they're making connections to, oh, this story, it's Jesus. Oh, that story, it's Jesus. Oh, the Exodus, it's Jesus. The exile and bringing us back home, that's Jesus. And people are freaking out about this. We don't, which is sad. I think it's a commentary on how much or how little we know of the Old Testament and first century Jewish culture. But, you know, hey, we're on the Eastern Shore. It's 21st century. We've got stuff going on. I understand. I'm sympathetic to that. But here they're making all of these connections. Jesus is enlightening how they read these passages. So Matthew, what he's doing when he hears this story or this tradition about Joseph and the, and the angel coming to Joseph and we hear all this stuff, he, Matthew begins to get a little bit creative. And it says, all of this took place where Joseph was getting ready to ditch Mary and, and just kind of leave her be because she had violated the covenant. She's pregnant now and, pff, you know, that clearly means that she had sex with somebody for Joseph, you know, like that's what he's thinking, right? I mean, this is a the tough sell, like, oh, the Holy Spirit has come upon me. Okay, whatever. So he's, he's got this in mind to just divorce her quietly, and then Gabriel shows up and, and tells him or informs him that this is actually the case. Joseph, it's legit. Nobody else was involved here. This is a miracle. Baby, it's cool. She hasn't cheated on you. All this took place to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Look, the Parthenos, the virgin. It's a bit ambiguous, but still some people see this as a weighted sort of term. And the way that Matthew is using it now is he knows the traditions about Jesus 
And now he's reading Isaiah 7 in a completely different way. Look, look, the, the virgin, the Parthenos, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us, and that's Jesus. I don't know what was going on back in Ahaz's day. I mean, that was, that was old news. The, the two smoldering firebrands, they were taken care of. And whoever it was, whether it was Isaiah's wife or, or Ahaz's wife or some random girl at the time, like somebody had the baby and, and that took care of that. It was like it was a done prophecy. But now, Jesus, he's changed everything. And now like, I can't see that story without seeing him, him in it. So the, this, is, this is Mary and, and this is Jesus. This is how Matthew was attempting to make sense of this story. I've got a long quote here, but it's good, okay? This is uh, Johnny G. He says, Isaiah's promise about a girl having a baby whose birth would signify that God was with his people in the crisis they were going through was not a promise about something to happen in seven centuries time. It was about now. Nor was it a prophecy about a girl who would still be a virgin when she had her baby. It was about a young woman of marriageable age who had sex and conceived and had a baby and named him Emmanuel. Nor was it about a baby who would turn out to be the very embodiment of God. The baby wasn't special. There was nothing about Emmanuel in the Old Testament that was gonna be like, he's the guy. The sign was this woman was gonna have a kid and call him Emmanuel and God was gonna take care of the two smoldering firebrands, Rezin and the son of Remaliah. No Jewish interpretation in Jesus' day would have understood the passage to refer to the Messiah. Nobody was reading Isaiah 7 in 4 BC or so, waiting. Oh, when this Alma finally has a baby and we get to call him Emmanuel, it was already done. No one was waiting for this to unfold. But... According to Golden Gate, when Jesus was born of someone who was actually a virgin, and when he turned out to be the very embodiment of God, Matthew's eyes popped when he noted the prophecy in Isaiah. Jesus has changed everything. The end of the story impacts how we read the beginning of the story. It helps him to put a label onto realities that the early Christians knew and to see them in the context of the scriptural story. Matthew is doing creative, first century Jewish interpretation. Woo, that's fun to say. Creative, first century Jewish interpretation. He's connecting dots that no one else is connecting to Jesus, dots that we take for granted and dots that we think were laid back way here and didn't have any sort of fulfillment until 4 BC or so. Side note, Jesus was not born at zero. Herod was still on the scene and Herod died in 4 BC, so that gives us our terminus ad chem. Look it up, Google, whatever. Like, that's our, our latest date possible. That's what I'm saying. That was, that was Latin. Hopefully. It was, probably, it was probably butchered Latin, but it was, you know, he can't be born in three because that Herod would already be dead. You follow? Okay. That was just a side note. It helped uh, Matthew and the early Christians to understand what's going on in this story. For Matthew, Jesus is Emmanuel. For Matthew, he's got a new end point. And while the stories of the Old Testament hold meaning, they now have new significance in Jesus. 
And because Jesus is Emmanuel, because Jesus is God with us, he begins to see Jesus all over the pages of Isaiah. And perhaps, this is where I'm getting a little uh, creative, I think. Perhaps for Matthew, as he's putting this together, he's creating a context where just like Ahaz, Joseph and Mary have an opportunity to trust. This is a whopper. Hey, young girl, not married and maybe not sexually active, you're going to have a baby. Hey, man who is engaged to this woman who you haven't had sex with, that she's having a baby, it's cool and this is God's plan. These individuals have opportunities to trust or to not trust. All throughout Advent, both this year and in the last few years, like just understanding who Mary is and what she was up against in this culture, the potential death threats that may have happened, the potential rumors about her and her child, the, the bit about Joseph and the potential breaking of their covenant together because of what has taken place, and even Joseph, the things that he had to go through for this marriage to be um, solvent, it gave them an opportunity to trust or to not trust in the story world of what we see in the first uh, century here, to trust what God is about or not. And in effect, we have that opportunity to trust or not trust as well. I'm not limiting this to, to trust whether or not the virgin birth took place. I don't I don't care so much about that. Let's put that off to the side for a moment. I just mean to trust or not trust that Jesus is God with us. That the things out there on the periphery that God has taken care of or will take care of, that our future is going somewhere with him, that through his son we have life and we have hope, that we are able to trust that. In Advent, as we think about the coming of Jesus, whether the first coming or the second coming, it leaves us with these questions of, do we trust? Or like Ahaz, do we put ourselves in positions where we align ourselves with the people that have power and we think they can be of help and of service? Does fear win the day in our lives or do we become a people of faith, not just in the intellectual ascent that we have, to the message of Jesus, but to the way that we respond to that through trust, through our actions, through the way that we exhibit faith that God is in control of these things. Last thing, and I don't know about you, but even when I say that phrase about God being in control, and maybe this is a bad pastor confession as well, all sorts of like PTSD comes back to me. We've got the Twilight Paris song, God is in control. But you also have pastors who explain away myriad tragedies and hurt and pain because God is in control. And when you look at it, it doesn't seem like it. I still think we find ourselves on the precipice of faith versus fear. And while I can't explain to you all of the things that happen and why they happen and who's behind them, I've been reliant upon this for a long time now. God weeps with those who weep. God is present with you in the pit. 
that Brene Brown paints for us, the empathy pit. Jesus meets us in those moments of hurt and despair. And you can't convince me, you cannot convince me that the things that we go through in this life have been orchestrated to teach us something or to get us to a certain place. I don't believe that that's what's happening here, but what I do believe and what I place my faith in is that Jesus, as God with us, locks arms in solidarity when we go through the lowest of lows and says, I am with you. I know for a thoughtful crowd and people that are highly cerebral and a touch cynical that sometimes that enough, that, that that's not enough, but man, tonight I hope that you'll allow it to maybe take root. God is with you in everything that we go through. He is not planning your demise or your tragedies, but he is locking arms with you in solidarity, walking with you in the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. May we be a community that's able to share that good news and may we be a community that's able to lean into faith over fear.